Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hello, my friends. It is Erin and I'm here with a solo cast today. I um, I've been promising you guys that I would deliver this episode for months now. I went to a thyroid seminar, so it was a three-day thyroid seminar back in November, and um, today I'm going to give you guys the notes that I took from that seminar. Um, obviously, it's impossible to take three days worth of information and put them into 60 minutes, but I'm going to give you guys the big takeaways, um, and I think it's a good time to do it, especially on the heels of last week's podcast where I interviewed Dr. Jolene Brighton and she talked all about female um, female hormones, but we, we also talked about the thyroid a little bit there. So um, I'm sure you guys have some follow-up questions and maybe they'll be covered in today's episode. So the seminar itself was pretty intense. Um, it was solely focused on the thyroid, but the thyroid dictates just about everything else in the body from top to tail. Every cell in the body has receptor sites for thyroid hormones. So, I mean, it literally dictates everything. Um, so we basically explored everything in the body from top to tail. It was insane. Um, the presenter was Dr. Eric Dorninger. He has a practice out in Boulder, Colorado. He was absolutely amazing. I'm going to try to get him on the show because you guys would love him. He's just the best, the best, the best. I can't say enough good things about him. Um, from here on out, I'm going to refer to him as Eric just because I can't say his last name very well. It's a hard, it's a hard name to say over and over again. Um, all right, before we get into it, if you guys love the podcast, if you listen, if we provide you with valuable resources. I would be so honored if you could go to iTunes and leave a review. So leave a star review. Ideally, it would be five stars, you know, if you think we're worthy of that. And then leave a written review. That's one of the best ways to get this podcast into more hands. And then, of course, share with your family and your friends. Um, you know, we're just trying to get good, solid information out there to arm, arm your, you guys with with information so you can either be your own clinician or take this information to your clinician and, and start to unpack your own health story. Um, all right, so today there are really two segments of takeaways um, that I'm going to explore. Obviously, thyroid stuff, I'll get to that second. Um, I think it's just the stuff that I'm going to say, I think it's all good information to pass on to you. It, it's, I, I think it's, 
solid practice, and this is Eric's recommendation as well, that it should be the standard of care to run thyroid labs on everybody. So like everybody that walks through the door should get a thyroid screen. This stuff, it's so important and you'll see how much of the body it impacts. And so if we, I mean, it's definitely a multi system problem. And so if we have these mystery health things popping up, which so many of us do, I think if, if nothing else, just to rule it out, we need to look at the thyroid. Um, and this is especially true for women in their postpartum period. You know, I did talk about this on the show last time, my own experience, um, how, how I feel like that was kind of a make or break moment for me. It's going to my doctor and them not listening to me. And I, I did have some thyroid stuff going on and, you know, it led to anxiety, it led to depression, it led to severe joint pain. And then it kind of just spiraled out of control because I kept hearing that nothing's wrong with you. You're just tired. This is normal. And Meanwhile, there really was something physiologically going on with me. So once again, you know, a woman is led to believe she's crazy when there's actually something going on in her body. And that was certainly my experience. Um, so we'll talk all about that. But another thing that I really want to bring up is um, Eric talked a lot about being a practitioner and what makes a good practitioner. And there were a lot of gems and tidbits of wisdom that he passed down. And he was so open and honest and transparent about his practice. And I don't really think that's the norm. So I just felt like, hey, this is kind of like, these are like golden nuggets and I'm listening to them and I'm taking them in, but I think it's awesome to pass them along to you guys as well. Um, I know that we do have a lot of practitioners that listen to this show or even practitioners to be people who are studying nutrition that listen to the show. So I'm going to share this for you guys. But even if you're not a clinician or a nutritionist or a health coach, I think it's important to hear these things. Um, if you're working with a practitioner or you're potentially interviewing somebody to be your practitioner, all of this is important stuff. Um, and I'm just hearing more and more how overwhelmed people are with health information, right? It's, I always say it, it's not that we don't have enough information, it's that we have so much information. We have all the information right at our, di at our disposal and we have a hard time figuring out what is appropriate for me? Like, does this apply to me or does this not? And we get so overwhelmed that we just shut down. Uh, and I think social media has changed the game a bit and, and we're all starting to follow people for health advice, which I think is cool in a lot of ways. Uh, but I just want to make sure that the people that you're taking advice from are actually worthy of giving it. And I don't, I don't mean worthy from like a take up space standpoint, but make sure you're getting it from an appropriate source. Um, cause anybody can start talking about health, um, but do they actually know what they're talking about is, is, the, is the big ticket item. Um, honestly, so many of my clients have already spent time researching on their own, whether it's through social media or Google or books or whatever, and they're starting to come up with their own plans or they've, they've come up with their own plans in the past or maybe they've thrown things against a wall to see what sticks and they can get to a certain point. We can all get ourselves to a certain point, right? Sometimes what we need is just somebody else to swoop in and help with the remaining pieces or at the very least get another set of eyes on the situation. I know when I'm going through health swings or I need help or I, I need 
guidance or help, I'll, I'll hire people. You know, I have my own nutritionist. I have my own naturopath. And I enter into a dialogue with these people. And I, sometimes I just don't want the sole responsibility of my health to be on me. I want somebody else to, to talk through some things. And I think that's where um, practitioners can step in. It, this is what a lot of us do. It's we get to assess the entire situation, right? I'm like, give me all of your backstory. Before I even work with somebody, I'm spending at least an hour going through intake forms and labs and just getting the full picture of what's going on. So if you are on that side of the fence and you're looking for a practitioner, I think some of what I'm about to say, some of this conversation can help you enter into an informed dialogue about what your practitioners do and where their focus is and whether or not that's right for you. Um, so talking about social media, this is a funny, I was like, obviously I'm so in, in for, for the entire weekend, I'm sitting in front of this doctor. Of course I was front row and center. Um, and I was like, I super wanted to do a deep dive on him. Like just go down the social media rabbit hole and was like, you know, like learn all about him, like internet stalk him so hard on my lunch break. Um, so I was like, yo, Eric, you want Instagram? And he's like, oh, actually I'm not. I'm like, uh, what? Who's not on Instagram? Like who isn't on Instagram in 2019, especially if you're running a business. So I'm like, you're not on Instagram, dude. And he said that the reason he's not on Instagram and the reason that he doesn't even market is because if he grows faster than his clinic can keep up, then his patients lose their good care. And I was like, wow, that is so counterculture right now. Um, so he currently books out six to eight weeks in advance. And he says if he gets beyond that, it becomes a problem um, because he gets, he gets overworked and he can't spend as much time on each client case. And he's seen it happen with other big name clinicians. Um, and then him and I were talking privately on, during a break about this whole glamour within the, the functional medicine movement, people are spending so much time making their Instagram feeds look like pretty lifestyle blogs. But if they're not giving good care to their clients and their patients, does it really matter how glamorous it is? Um, I even just saw recently somebody call themselves a lifestyle coach. And I was like, what does that mean? Like you go in and coach people on like how to make their lives look like your Instagram feed? Like what is that about? I just think we can get so caught up in the crosshairs. And, and don't get me wrong, marketing and networking and promotion and a strong social media presence can be so important in today's world. But if that's the primary focus of your business or if that takes up most of your time, that's problematic, especially if you're in the healthcare world. Um, one thing he said was that he's constantly learning and studying on his on his patient's behalf. And I love that. Hearing that was was very validating for me because sometimes I start to beat myself up. I personally spend more of my time on research than I do on anything else, even working with one-on-one -on -one clients. It's just what my practice looks like right now in this, this season of my life. And it's so that I can make sure that I'm giving my clients you know, my clients and my memberships and my online nutrition programs, the best and most up-to-date current care. 
Um, so research is really big for me, but I do question myself, like, am I spending too much time on the wrong things? Um, I fall into the same trap of that everybody else does of comparing myself to what others are doing on the internet. Um, you know, seeing what other clinicians are doing, seeing what other practitioners are doing on, on social media and being like, oh, well, I suck. Um, <clears throat> I start to question the way that I run things. Um, I recently heard, and I kind of, I went off on Instagram a little bit about this, but I recently heard that online, online businesses, like the current standard is to spend 80% of time on marketing and 20% of time on actual work. And I was like, wait, what the heck? That's what people are doing out there? And I think, again, if you're in the health world, I just don't see how that's a possibility. I don't see how you can be giving good care if only 20% 20, 20 of your time is dedicated to clients. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, and I, I, am cer I certainly didn't write the book on online business or on functional medicine for that matter, but it's, these are just questions that that I come up with, and I think it's something that we should we should pay attention to. Like, how strong is your practitioner's online presence, and like, can they back that up? You know. Um, but it was also interesting because like I realized when I'm comparing myself to other people, I'm comparing myself to people who are spending eighty percent of their time marketing. So of course, my social media output isn't going to touch theirs. This is a totally kind of an off topic subject, but it, it, I think it's super important to hear because it was like a wicked aha moment for me. I follow this woman. Um, she's not a healthcare provider. Um, but I, I've been following her for years. I love her work. And I thought she, she had recently downsized within the past couple of years. And, and I follow her cause I like her business model. She's a mom of three and she, and I'm like, oh, she's like running her business from her like iPhone while she's breastfeeding, like living off the land. And like, I had this whole story in my head of what her day-to-day -day life looked like. And then she recently came out and said that she just had to let go of her team of seven. So not only does she work full time, but she had seven people on her team also working for her. And so here I was, little old me, just like one-stop shop Aaron Holt, nobody on my team, comparing my productivity levels in my output to eight people. And I was just like, okay, Aaron, this is it. You need to officially stop comparing yourself to what you see on social media because like we manufacture, and I'm not saying, this woman wasn't being, um, she wasn't trying to hide that. It's just, I had created the story in my head of what she was doing. And I was comparing myself to that and trying to live up to that standard, not knowing that it was eight people behind the work. So that was kind of nutty, um, a little bit off topic, but I think again, an interesting thing to hear. Um, so Talking about research, uh, Dr. Eric was talking about just how much research and how much time he has to spend on research in order to stay current. Um, so as practitioners, it's really about managing that time, I think. And it's it's not just carving out the time to work with patients, but also the time to be up on the latest research. Continuing education is so important in this line of work. And if you're entering into a relationship with a practitioner, that is definitely one thing that you can ask about is current trainings. Um, I, I took a moment 
to look around the room and see who was there at this seminar. It's like, who's really interested in our area, in our local area, who's really interested in learning more? Who's actively engaged? Who's dedicated to continuing their education and constantly learning, learning, learning? You know, our understanding of the human body changes it changes rapidly. It changes almost daily. We, we have so much more information coming in. So we have to, as healthcare practitioners, we have to keep up with that new information so we can then disseminate it down to our clients and our patients. Um, so I just want to say kudos to the people out there who are actively seeking, seeking out education and, and doing the trainings and staying current um, in their understanding of what's going on. Um, and again, if you're looking for a practitioner, you know, that's something to think about. That's something to ask about. You know, it's a big deal because it's not easy to find the time to do this. We're all busy. Like everybody's busy. <laughs> Everybody is so stinking busy. Um, and it, I think, you know, if you're a business owner, in order to run a business, not only do you have to take the time to actually work with people, right? But you have to take the time to do the appropriate client follow-up. Like that's very time consuming. So if I'm, if I have a client, I'm sending them after every meeting, I'm sending them an email that's, and it's a very specific email to like what there is going on with them. I don't have standard protocols, um, super time consuming. Uh, it takes time to order labs. It takes time to look at labs. Um, all of this is very time consuming paperwork and backend stuff, billing, all of that is super time consuming. The, you know, we have to market our practice, whether that's social media or otherwise. We have to network, get to know other practitioners in the area, all very time consuming. Um, so I think that the practitioners who are actually carving out the time to continue to learn and research, that's pretty major. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's really stepping up, I think. Um, so anyway, just keep in mind that you do have a right to interview anybody that you want to work with, whether it's a nutritionist, whether it's a naturopath, a specialist, you should have the right to have a conversation with them uh, ahead of time. That's why I always offer a free consult in the beginning. It's like, so people can interview me, they can get to know me, right? If you have something specific going on with your body, you, you know, you want to enter into a relationship with somebody who's like, yeah, okay, this sounds good. We can, we're a good fit. I think that's just so, so important. Um, so, you know, continuing education, very, very important as a practitioner, but it's not just about the trainings. Um, I think people can get locked into trainings and certifications and people can think that they need to learn more before they actually go out and start working with people. I mean, anybody that has started anything, whether it's in the health field or not, probably can relate to this. It's like, well, I just want to get that one more degree or that one more certification. I just want to learn a little bit more. We, we, it's fear that keeps us back, fear that we're not good enough. It's, it's a self-worth issue, but we think we have to amass all the information before we actually begin. And I think that's why a lot of people don't actually begin because it's so scary to do so. Um, so, so don't let the fear of not knowing enough hold you back. If you are a practitioner listening to this, if that makes any sense. Um, but you also have to, you know, because you have to put the information into practice. So if you're doing trainings, it's, it's actually next to impossible to apply the information unless you're actively working with people, right? You have to apply that information to an actual human being. And if you can't do this, if you're not working with people, 
that information kind of falls flat. It's, I think it's harder to retain and also harder to understand and definitely harder to see how it plays out in practice. Um, you know, Jessica Flanagan, I've interviewed her on the show before. She's a nutritionist and she's been saying for a while, she's been talking about this for a while and it's definitely a message that I'm starting to champion. It, it's, it can be tricky getting your information, your health information, your food and nutrition information from blogs versus clinicians. Um, you can be the most well-researched, credentialed person, but if you're not working one-on-one -on -one with people, you don't necessarily have a dog in the fight because theory is just is one thing, right? Theory and research is one thing, but practice, whew, that's another beast entirely. You have to be able to apply the information to a human. And when you do that, you'll see that one thing will work for one person and another thing will work for another person. So again, it's not about just this like one size fits all protocol, which sometimes that's what we learn in school, right? It's like a, it's a protocol or it's a plan. It's a jump off point. But then once you get into the trenches working with, with actual human bodies, it's like, whoa, um, all right, so nobody's responding to this. What do I do? You have to have that ability to, to think critically and to act on your feet and to dive more into the research and pull stuff out of the research and learn how to apply that to your practice. Um, the ability to course correct if something isn't working, right? figure it out as you go. It's just never as simple as a straightforward protocol ever, unfortunately, um, if it were only that simple. And this is like kind of like a buyer beware. If somebody's making it seem that way, if somebody's telling you that, if you're reading that on the internet, that should definitely raise a red flag because that's just the hallmark of inexperience. If somebody's like, this is the way to do something, right? It's especially when it comes to like healing chronic illness, there is no one way. Um, it's claiming that there is one way sells books. It sells online programs, um, but it doesn't actually always get the results that you're after. Unfortunately, nothing uh, replaces experiment experience. Like nothing it replaces that uh, working with people. So, and you know, guys, I I'm gonna throw this out there because I don't want to sound holier than thou ever. Even with experience, you're still gonna screw up. Like you're still going to mess up. One thing that uh, Dr. Eric said, I actually wrote this down because it was a good one. Um, if you're looking for a job with low stress and a lot of attaboys and pats in the back, you're in the wrong field. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that is so true. You have to be willing to like get punched in the face over and over and over again and just like keep picking yourself back up and being like, okay, going to go back to it. Because um, you will mess up. You will get things wrong. But that's how you learn. Um, and I think that, it, that, that idea of like, you're going to mess up really butts up against any self-worth issues. Um, I'm going to do a whole episode on self-worth because it's something that keeps coming up and I think we need to have more conversations about it. Um, but that's something, so understand like if you're uncomfortable with me saying that, like that's wicked normal. Um, but I think it's just the willingness to jump in and get your hands dirty and maybe even mess up a little bit. I think that's what makes a good, a good clinician. Um, Anyway, moving along, in talking about being a good clinician, uh, Dr. Eric runs something that he calls a results-based clinic. Basically, he wants to get his patients' results. I know that's crazy in modern-day medicine. I know that's a 
crazy idea, uh, but bear with me. Um, I was talking to another local practitioner, uh, Dr. Hillary Trejano, about this. And we were saying that, like, if that's your goal, which, I mean, that should be your goal. <laughs> if that's your goal to get your clients or your patients' results, then you actually have to monitor results. You can't just administer a protocol to somebody and say, like, bye, see you later. You actually have to track those people, see how they're doing, track their results, track, you know, like track their, their symptoms and their improvements and all that kind of stuff. And that takes time. And that takes quite a bit of time. And it's exactly why I won't do one-off appointments. Um, a lot, I, I do get a lot of requests like, can I just schedule a quick appointment with you? Or can I just get in once? I just need one appointment. I don't do that anymore. Um, because it's just not, it's not, it doesn't get the results. Um, and a lot of what he was saying really reinforced how I work with clients. It, and it really reinforced that this is the appropriate model for the work that I want to do and the quality of care that I want to administer with my clients. It is the best way to get results. I mean, I've been doing this for eight years now. I've seen what works for my clientele. I've definitely got more of a niche population not everybody is working with the same group of people that I am. Um, <clears throat> so my model is going to be appropriate for every everybody else. But for my group, this is what works. This is really how to build out the support that you need. Uh, it's this, this membership model that I've created. Part of the reason that I only see a limited number of clients, why I keep my clientele small, is because I want to give everybody the best quality of care possible, the best to my ability. Um, the reason that I switched gears and moved over to my membership model six or seven months ago is because we're in contact throughout the month. That that ability to contact your practitioner is built right in. And I can evaluate how you're doing in real time. Um, and I want you to feel comfortable working with me. I want you to feel comfortable reaching out and saying like, hey, this is working for me or this isn't working for me. This doesn't feel good at all. So we can course correct. We can we can adjust things as you move forward. I mean, it's your body. And I just want to reinforce the messaging that it's it's what you're experiencing is real because we hear so much of the opposite in, in, in conventional medicine that like it's all in your head. And I just want to say like I want to – hold the space to say like, no, you're, what you're experiencing is real. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this. Um, one of the, one of my most favorite things that he said was that healing is like a chapter book and we have to take it chapter by chapter. I just love that because it really keeps things in such perspective. Like we, if you tried to jump to chapter eight, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Without the context of one, two, three, without the the, the steps beforehand. Um, and he, you know, he's very realistic. He said that I, I'm, he's not going to promise to get people better in six weeks. Like he's like, give me six months to start. And I love that. Um, I love how open he was about that because I think we're so accustomed to instant gratification in our modern day and we put that expectation onto our healing. I've seen firsthand both in my clients and in myself that 
that mentality can really do us a disservice because we, if we put a time cap or even a money cap on our healing and then we reach that cap and we haven't gotten to where we thought we should be by now, that can reinforce feelings of brokenness. Um, like there's something wrong with me. It can reinforce feelings of despair, of isolation, the feeling that nobody understands me and nobody can help. And I just hate to see, I just hate to see people in that, in that place. And it's not to say that you should stay with a practitioner if you feel like you're spinning your wheels or if you've reached the end of the line. But I think unrealistic expectations on ourselves, we, we, I think we put unrealistic expectations on ourselves, just like across the board in general. And I think this can carry over to our healing. And we can even sometimes put those expectations on our practitioners. And that's maybe not super fair. Um, I'll have people reach out to me and say, I can only afford to work with you for a month or for two months. And those are the people that I actually won't take on. Um, because what that does is put an expectation on both of us that you will be healed and I will fix you in two months time. And that's just so unrealistic. Um, and it's like pulling, pulling it back to the results driven practice thing. I want my clients to do well. I want to see them succeed. So if that means we put a two month cap on our work together, it's going to create this pressure cooker of a stressful environment for the both of us. And, and no results are going to come from that. No positive results are going to come from that. I mean, can some people start feeling better in two months? Absolutely, for sure, without a doubt. I mean, I've seen people improve in two weeks, so I know that that can happen. But I'm not about to enter into a client relationship with that expectation lumped at us right out of the gate. Because for most of us, it's taken years to get to where we are with our health, and we just can't unpack that in six weeks. And I think that's a huge, if you are on a healing journey, I think that's a huge, huge, huge takeaway message. Um, so anyway, a lot of moving parts there. And I just, again, I really appreciate how upfront um, Dr. Dorninger was about what he does in his clinic. Um, I'm obviously nowhere near the size and the scope of his practice, but it was just such a good reminder for me because we can get so bogged down by social media and how we're presenting ourselves and we can get locked into this notion of glamour and sometimes we can miss the actual good work that we're doing and we can forget to give ourselves a pat on the back for that. So anyway, let's switch gears and uh, talk about the thyroid and hypothyroidism and why it's so darn important that it warranted a whole three-day affair. Um, so I want to first outline how big of a deal this is and how common it is. Uh, levothyroxine is a drug prescribed for hypothyroid treatment, and it is the fourth most prescribed drug. Four. The fourth. I mean, that to me is crazy because you know how much medication is prescribed out there. So for this to be the fourth most prescribed, I mean, that's, that's telling us that a lot of people are on, are being treated for hypothyroidism. Um, the, the current stat is that it's seven to 8% of the population, but unfortunately that's very underreported, which, which will, um, you'll, you'll see why as we talk more about thyroid testing and all of that. Um, T3 is the active form of thyroid hormone, and T3 affects every single system in the body, as I said earlier. It sets the metabolic rate 
of everything. Um, so the brain, I'll kind of pick through different areas of the body that it affects the brain. Hypothyroidism left unchecked can actually actually cause the brain to dement. Um, T3, that thyroid hormone, drives steady oxygen and steady fuel into every cell, um, including brain cells. And without this, we can experience hypotension, so low blood pressure. Now, high blood pressure is so overplayed in in medicine that low blood pressure is often overlooked. I don't know. I experience, I have low blood pressure and I don't know if uh, I'm sure some people listening do as well. And I always get a pat on the back. Um, every time I go into the doctors like, Ooh, you have great blood pressure. I'm like, no, I don't. It's low. And I feel like shit when it's low. (laughs) So, so knock that off, please. Um, but if we don't have appropriate blood pressure, then blood isn't being pumped effectively to our extremities and our extremities. Yeah. It's our arms and our legs. It's also our genitals. Um, but it's also our brain. So if we don't have appropriate blood flow to the brain, uh, hello, the brain's not going to work properly. Um, thyroid hormone also, um, dictates our GI tract. So I know everybody and their mom wants to talk about gut health right now. Well, are you looking at the thyroid? Because that's, that's a huge, 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 importance. And that works both ways because if you don't have, if you have something going on in the gut that can impact thyroid function. And if you've got something going on with the thyroid that can impact gut function. So it's a, um, that works two ways, but thyroid hormones increase intestinal blood flow. So blood flow to the intestines and we need blood flow to the intestines for them to be healthy So if we've got leaky gut, again, something else everybody and their mom is talking about these days, leaky gut, we need appropriate blood flow to the intestines in order to heal leaky gut, right? Um, We need appropriate blood flow to keep the microbiota happy. Um, Thyroid hormone also sets the pace of gut motility. So if if you've got constipation, Uh, could be a thyroid issue. If you've got slow motility, could be a thyroid issue. If you have recurring SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, that when you get it treated, it comes back. Have you had your thyroid checked? That's really important. You want to get that looked at. Um, It also um, sets the pace of the gallbladder. So we can go back to episode 37 of this podcast to learn why that is so important. We know it's very important. It impacts liver function. It impacts cholesterol. It impacts your bones, cardiovascular health, red blood cells, hormones. If you've got an underactive thyroid, that can really muck up female hormones in a major way. So it's a very, very, very big deal. Low, if you have low T3, so low thyroid hormone or hypothyroidism, then you can't activate mitochondrial receptor sites. You guys remember mitochondria, right? The powerhouse of the cell. They generate ATP, which is energy. So if there's something happening where you can't utilize ATP, that's going to affect your energy. No energy, you know, lowered metabolism. When we think about metabolism, we think about the thyroid, we think about metabolism, we think of burning energy, burning calories, losing weight, getting skinny, but it goes so freaking far beyond that. If your glucose or protein or fat metabolism slows down, 
that's a huge problem that can eventually lead to chronic illness um, because we can't appropriately heal ourselves. If you want to heal anything, whether it's an ulcer or a chronic illness, if you want to heal anything, you need a surplus of ATP. You need a surplus of energy. You're asking your body to do a really big job. Um, and so for that, we need proper thyroid hormone. So let's go over some symptoms of hypothyroid underactive thyroid, um, brain fog, poor memory. This is obviously all going to relate to the systems that I was just talking about. Losing, if you're losing your hair anywhere on the body, on your head, um, if you're losing hair on the outer third of your eyebrows, that's a thyroid thing. Dry hair, dry skin, constipation or sluggish bowels, like I mentioned before. If you feel cold all the time or if your hands and feet are cold all the time, joint or muscle pain, low mood, depression, anxiety, if you feel tired all the time, even if you're sleeping really well, if you wake up feeling fatigued. Um, if you have a hard time sweating, that could be a thyroid thing. Uh, if you've got high cholesterol or if you have weight gain or weight loss resistance, this is a maybe. This is a maybe. With Hashimoto's, now Hashimoto's is the autoimmune. It's um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is autoimmune thyroid problem, um, which a lot of people say 90% of hypothyroidism is actually Hashimoto's, so we have to treat it like an autoimmune disease. We'll get to that in a sec. Um, but it's, it's oftentimes a mix of hypo and hyper thyroid, so underactive and overactive because the, your, 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 metabolic rate is swinging back and forth. And so when we think of hypothyroid, we think overweight, right? But that weight gain is oftentimes only when there's a comorbidity present. So like insulin resistance, for example. So Hashimoto's probably isn't just going to cause you to gain weight unless there's something else going on. Um, and many Hashimoto's patients are actually on the thin, frail side. Now, I certainly know exceptions to this rule, so this isn't like a hard and fast thing to look for, but it's just an interesting thing because some people will be like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not overweight, therefore my thyroid's fine. It's like, nope, that's actually not, you know, not necessarily true. So if you have any of those symptoms that I talked about, then you definitely want to get your thyroid tested. Now, here's the problem. A standard thyroid panel, if you go, let's say you went to your PCP and you're like, test my thyroid, a standard panel only looks at TSH and T4 most of the time. Sometimes they'll only test TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, and you should, if you follow me on Instagram, I've talked a lot about this lately because I'm just getting really frustrated with um, me evaluating a client of mine, seeing that they have a lot of thyroid symptoms and then sending them back to their physician to say, Hey, can I get a full thyroid workup? This is what I'm looking for. And their doctor saying, no, we won't do this. Um, or even clients or, you know, people asking outright, asking their doctors for a full thyroid panel and, and still being denied. Um, that, that's, 
a couple of different reasons. Insurance definitely plays into this. Oftentimes what they'll do is they'll look at TSH. If TSH comes back normal, then they won't run any more tests. If TSH comes back wonky, then they'll do further testing. And that is not a good practice. Um, here's why. For starters, the ranges for those markers vary lab from lab to lab. So that can obviously make normal ranges confusing because there's no set standard of what normal actually looks like. Um, also, we get those values based on a bell curve that's obtained from people who are tested and who goes to the lab to get tested, usually sick people, right? So that those normal ranges are not based on an entire population, but maybe more so a sick population. So how can we look to those for the normal ranges? So functional medicine um, all, tends to have what we call optimal ranges. So it's like how people, like when people are actually feeling good, this is what they're thyroid markers look like. And those are the, the ranges that I look at because you have to not just look at the blood work, but you have to look at the blood work in combination with the person sitting in front of you and what they're saying in their actual symptoms. Um, so you can come back. So you can get a, uh, a, a t your TSH tested and it can come back normal and you can still have all these thyroid symptoms and you can still have hypothyroidism even if your TSH is normal. Um, certain medications can affect thyroid. Um, they can affect the thyroid, but they may not actually affect TSH. So you could be on a medication that's impacting your thyroid function and you get tested and your TSH is normal. Um, those medications include anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, antidepressants, diabetic medications, hypertensive medications, pain medications, antacids, cholesterol-lowering medication. So if you're working with thyroid stuff, you want to make sure that your clinician is really familiar with different medications' abilities to affect the thyroid. Um, they can affect T3 and T4 output, uh, but not necessarily TSH. So again, if you're only looking at TSH as the one marker, you would miss that. Uh, TSH is not actually testing the thyroid. It's actually testing the pituitary gland in your brain. So how it works is that neurotransmitters fire into the hypothalamus in your brain, and that triggers the release of TRH or thyrotropin-releasing hormone. And then that tells the pituitary gland to release TSH. And then TSH speaks to the thyroid. So if you have a low TSH, what that's saying is that you don't have a proper pituitary response. So looking at that number isn't really evaluating the thyroid. So again, you could have a normal TSH, but an underactive thyroid. So that's why it's so important to go above and beyond just looking at TSH. Dr. Eric said, you can't do medicine just by checking TSH. There's so much more to it than that. Um, I'm talking about T3 and T4. So your thyroid gland, your body makes um, thyroid hormone, right? And 93% of what your body makes is in the form of T4, which is actually the storage form of thyroid hormone. And then we only make 7% of T3, and T3 is the active form of the hormone. So what we have to do 
is convert T4 to T3 as we need it. As we need thyroid hormone, we have to make that conversion. We have to do it on our own. And unfortunately, there are certain things that can impact this conversion. Now, the downside of this is that people who are being treated for hypothyroidism, most of those medications are giving T4. So if you're given T4 and you can't convert it into T3, into active thyroid hormone, well, you still have a problem. This is why a lot of people who are on medication for um, for thyroid hypothyroidism still have symptoms. Um, one of the things that can decrease that conversion rate from T4 to T3 is inflammation. So if you've got inflammation going on, you got to go inflammation hunting. You got to figure out where that inflammation is coming from to make sure that your thyroid is function, uh, functioning appropriately. So conventional treatment here is to put somebody on thyroid hormone, to put them on T4, right? Like I just said. Now, this is a, this is not the answer the only answer if there's an autoimmune component going on. So like I said, up to 90% of hypothyroidism can be autoimmune, Hashimoto's. And when you have Hashimoto's, you have an immune disorder with an endocrine fallout. So the, the, the big issue is that you have an autoimmune disorder and what it's affecting is the endocrine system, the hormonal system. It's affecting the thyroid. So you have to address the underlying cause of immune dysregulation. And in most Hashi's case, cases, the only management is thyroid hormone, which is why it's unsuccessful. It's why you can be on thyroid meds and still have thyroid symptoms because you have to manage the immune system. In the case of Hashimoto's, you have to also manage the immune system. Um, one way to do this is to make sure that you're eating a gluten-free diet. This was one of the biggest takeaways, and I posted this on Instagram a couple of months ago. This was one of the biggest takeaways from this um, from this meeting. Now, I've known about the about how important um, a gluten-free diet is for Hashimoto's for a long time, but I was a little bit wishy-washy with it with clients because I'm like well, if you feel like you can tackle this, how do, you know, maybe you can try it. I was just so nervous because some people freak out when you tell them they have to go on a gluten-free diet. Some people just do. It just feels really hard. It feels like a big undertaking. It feels really overwhelming. And um, so I would, I would kind of like talk around it and gently suggest it. And after going to the seminar, I am a lot more um, hard charging about it because Dr. Eric said this. He's like, if you have Hashi's patients and you are not putting them on a gluten-free diet, then get a bit, get a different job. Basically, he's like, you can't be afraid to tell your, your patients or your clients the hard things, the things they don't want to hear. You have to have enough courage to say those things. And I just realized it was like a courage issue. I just didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings or stress anybody out. But at the end of the day, if there's this like low hanging fruit that can make somebody feel better, like, yeah, let's tackle that first. Um, and there's just so much data to back this up. I know that a lot of people disagree with this. And I'm just curious if the, the people that dis some people are like, you don't need to be gluten-free if you have Hashimoto's, that's stupid. Um, 
But I'm just curious if those people are actively working with Hashimoto's patients and if they're getting good results, right? Because I think that's that's where we have to challenge the system a little bit. Um, like the doctors that won't run the labs. Well, hey, your patient isn't feeling better. So what you're doing isn't working. So let's open up to another way because your way isn't working anymore. So we have to figure out another way. Let's get these patients results, right? Um, and then there are certain doctors that will just say diet doesn't matter. If you got, I, I had my friend, um, Kristen on the show, she's the biological dentist. That was a great episode if you haven't listened to it already. And she said she got diagnosed with IBD, irritable bowel disease, which is an autoimmune attack of the intestine. And she was told upon diagnosis that diet will do nothing for you. This is an autoimmune disease of the intestines. And she was told that food, nope, diet, nope, doesn't matter which is incredible. I mean, hello. Um, she now, I mean, she got her disease completely into remission through diet. So, I mean, obviously it does matter. Um, I just get really frustrated, frustrated when I have clients that tell them like their diet, their doctor tells them that their diet won't make a difference because it can make a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, and I also want to point out with that, that if, um, gluten is a trigger for Hashimoto's and can, potentially make it worse, you also have to be really mindful of your thyroid medication because some thyroid medications contain gluten. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're freaking out right now, just go ahead to glutenfreedrugs.com. That's a resource that lists out all the gluten-free, <coughs> excuse me, all the gluten-free drugs. Um, so you can cross-reference your medication with that list. <coughs> Sorry. I got a tickle in my throat, so hopefully I can get through this, this last bit. Okay, so for all of those reasons that I just mentioned, it's really important to get a full thyroid workup done, even if you have a diagnosis already. Like, I think you should be getting a full workup done every, every year at least. Um, the tricky part, though, is that if you get a full workup, you want to make sure that you work with a practitioner who understands these labs, who knows what to do with the data. I would honestly, if it were me... I would look for a practitioner who has been to this Mastering the Thyroid Apex seminar um, because they go over in this seminar the 24 different patterns to look for um, for thyroid dysfunction. It's not just as easy as looking at TSH and saying, oh, it's high or oh, it's low. It's... Um, there are many different ways the thyroid can uh, go wonky, for lack of a better term. So, okay, without much further ado, these are the labs that you want to ask for. TSH is what they would normally do anyway. Um, I like to see free T3, total T3, free T4, total T4. I also like to see reverse T3. A lot of clinicians don't like to look at that one just because they don't have an understanding. It's a little bit controversial. Um, I think it has quite a bit of um, utility. So I like to see reverse T3. Sometimes T3 uptake, that can, tell, that can tell us if there's a hormonal component to this. And then always, always, always you want to get your antibodies tested to tell us if there is an autoimmune component to this. So TPO, and TGAB. Those are the two um, thyroid peroxidase antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies are the two antibodies you want to get 
asked for. So again, normally what they'll do is they'll t test T T TSH, sometimes T4. If those are both normal, then they won't follow up with further um, testing. What I say is just get the full testing done. It's not crazy expensive. Um, when, when clients order that whole kit and caboodle through me, it's cash pay and I think it's like 80 bucks. So it's not like super duper crazy expensive. It's definitely worth it for all the information that it provides. Um, all right, you guys. So that is my recap. Um, hopefully you found that helpful. I know I chatted for a lot about practitioner stuff, but, um, I think it's, I think it's worth, I think it's worth talking about for other practitioners, but also for non-practitioners just to kind of get a glimpse into, uh, the life of a practitioner and, and the, the, the whole backstory there. All right, you guys, thanks for listening as always. If you have questions, send them our way. And if you love us, please let us know by leaving us an iTunes review. All right, homies. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you 